trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Every Tuesday, we like to get together with my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, how are you today? Well, I got, I'm, I'm marveling at everything that goes, goes on. Uh, you know, just when you think things can't get any weirder, they do. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? And, and I want to dive into the weirdness, but before we go there, I have to ask you, have you had a mm-hmm. chance to watch or are you aware of the uh, film 2000 Mules? No, I haven't, and I'm disappointed that it's not available for free, at least as far as I can tell. It looks like you have to sign up for Dinesh D'Souza's stream and pay for it. Uh, I wish he would have just released it as a free public service, which is what it ought to be. I, you know, I'm aware of the, the whole thing about the trafficking of, of the, the votes and so on. I think everybody on our side of the aisle is. The, the issue is whether it matters, whether it's any, of any relevance, because we already know the question is, is it going to be put forward in such a manner that the people on the other side of the aisle begin to notice it uh, and acknowledge it. You know, truth these days is whatever CNN, MSNBC, and all of the authoritative sources say it is. And until they say it is, then it's just disinformation. Well, I I don't know how. Somehow I stumbled across a... uh... Uh, oh, actually, I know where I found it. There's a, there was an article by Andrea Widberg in AmericanThinker.com, and it included a link which lets you access the full film. And I've, I've only watched about halfway through, but I'm going to encourage you, regardless of paywalls or, or whatever uh, obstacles you run into, I know there are places you can watch it for free. I'm... Yeah. I, I'm not looking for a reason, you know, to, to get all upset about uh, the election. I just want to know, you know, why there are so many unanswered questions. This film actually answers some of those questions and, and does mm-hmm. so very yep. convincingly that there were a lot of people bringing thousands and thousands of these uh, mail-in ballots to, uh, to various drop-off points. And, and it certainly would have been enough. To, to turn the tide of the election, especially when you consider, you know, how many places in those key, you know, those key swing states stopped counting the votes and then miraculously resumed it. Oh, look, look at all the ballots that we found that were for, for Joe Biden. I mean, it's it would be just sure. a remarkable I mean, coincidence, but it's not. Yeah. The fundamental problem here is this business of these these mail in ballots, which, frankly, the orange man enabled uh, by allowing the weaponization of hypochondria and continuing the emergency, so-called. Uh, and all of that nonsense. If we'd had an honest election day, as we used to have in this country, not election months, and the majority of people, the vast majority of people, had to show up in person, produce an ID to, to confirm that, that their identity, and then cast a ballot in a way uh, that that could be tracked if need be, none of this would happen. We'd have uh, we'd have closure because we could know for sure whether you know, Biden is the legitimate president or not. But that's been taken away from us, and thus. The, the legitimacy of the entire system has been fundamentally eroded, and I'm, I'm, I'm practically certain, I rarely gamble, but I would in this case, that the same shenanigans are going to happen again come the midterms this fall. I kind of wonder if uh, the, the waning public support for, for not just the politicians, but for the narrative that they've been putting out there, 
is going to uh, precipitate some other kind of crisis that uh, will make it necessary, you know, for our own good. Uh, we probably shouldn't have the elections until things have calmed down. I mean, there's a time I would have thought there's no way they would ever do that. Now, I'm not so certain. Sure, they've already kind of given us the hint, hint that they're going to do exactly that. I, I wrote something the other day about uh, Biden's COVID information furor, uh, talking about we're going to have 100 million new cases this fall and winter. Uh, you know, and what does that imply? We're going to have another round of this weaponization of hypochondria, rona monomania, so as to have, uh, instead of election day, election months, and lots of absentee balloting and lots of opportunity um, for electronic skullduggery to engineer the result that they want. They've become, and they've become quite brazen and insolent about it. They don't care anymore about even maintaining the pretense that they're objective or at least at least plausibly objective neutral people, public servants who are just doing the, the business of the people, right? right. And they're they are Jacobin ideologues, and they're very open about it. Look, we've got a, literally got a ministry of truth now coming out of the, the, the Heimat Vicar Heisties, the Homeland Security Department. Remember when we were told by the champ that we needed the Homeland Security Department to protect us against terrorist evildoers? Oh, yeah. And now look what it's morphed into. You know, we're, we're the evildoers because we question whatever the narrative happens to be. Uh, just asking for an answer. Give me, you know, give me an answer. Give me facts to support what you're saying. And okay, I'll, I'll accept it. And if not, hey, I'm going to continue to question what you're telling me. You know, that has become de facto the equivalent of being a terrorist in our time. You know, and they're they're burying their fangs and they're telling us uh, implicitly that by doing this, they're going to come after us if we question anything that they tell us uh, is the truth. Wow. It's uh, it's definitely a time when I feel like uh, the the pressure is being turned up, um, and and then there's the elephant in the room. And Eric, you've talked about this as long as anybody that I know about. Why are the unvaccinated still not dying? Come on, we were told you get vaccinated or else you know this is surely going to be sickness and death. But the unvaccinated aren't dying. Seems like somebody has some explaining to do. Sure, to get back to this hundred million uh, projection that's been officially trotted out. I wrote an article yesterday, I called it the thinking cap, and it made me wonder, well, okay, now wait a minute. Given that the majority of the population apparently has been vaccinated, and I always put that in air quotes for good reason, uh, how is it that we're going to have all these new cases? I thought, you know, didn't Joe Biden say, if you get vaccinated, you're not going to get this sickness? And more fundamentally, if you uh, if you get vaccinated, the whole idea of it is that you can't spread it. Otherwise, why bother with it, Right. You know, you're going to continue to spread the disease. So what? Everybody gets it. What's the point? Nobody seems to want to ask these questions, and certainly not uh, in the mainstream media as they like to style themselves. It's just elementary stuff. Everything has become reflexively ideological in the manner that Orwell wrote about in 1984. People turn on a dime, whatever the party order at the lectern starts shrieking about, the majority of the people in the crowd don't even, it doesn't phase them. They don't pause for a moment. They can pivot 90 degrees and embrace something that's completely contradictory to what the received truth was just a moment before. Yep, I think that's that's an accurate description. Now, there are some holdouts, you and you and I among them, and I would assume anybody within earshot of, of this conversation is is probably in that uh, that crowd of uh, the I don't know what you would call us the the resistors, the the scoff laws, you know, <laughs> but the refusers the clingers not- to reality, the, yeah. the clingers to objective reality, the ones like Winston Smith in the novel who uh, just continue to say that uh, two plus two equals four and not five. Yeah, that's that's the group, the refuseniks. <laughs> all, all I know is 
um, the the longer that we've held out against uh, getting getting vaccinated and boosted, the the more vindicated I feel. I'm sure you probably I do feel the same. Well, absolutely, it confirms me in the judgment that I made that this whole thing was hinky from the get go, and now I'm even more suspicious of anything that they have to say about anything. And that what 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 uh, what baffles me is that more people aren't uh, of a similar mind. We've been serially lied to in a way that's abundantly clear. You know, there's no there, there's no parsing it. There's no oh well, they were well intended. Oh, you know, it was an honest mistake. It's it's deliberate, willful, serial lying, and they they just don't seem to be bothered by that, and they continue to accept more of it. Well, thank goodness there are cracks that are appearing, you know, in the narrative, and I think that. Uh, you know, as I look around me, and this is, uh, granted, I live in a kind of rural area, life seems very normal. For the most part, most mm-hmm. people have gone back to, to life as normal. Once in a great while, you'll see somebody in a mask, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's not a big deal. No one is forcing it on anybody. It's mm-hmm. it's the yeah, population the centers mm-hmm. that, that seem to hold to, you know, you can't give up the appearance that, uh, you know, there's, there's this uh, disease waiting to kill us all. Right. And I think, you know, it makes sense to me that that's the case because, frankly, the, the, these denser population areas, these cities and so on, have become far more pathologically unsound than the rural areas, far more disconnected from reality, far more alienated. You know, individually, people, I think, are atomized and they're, 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 they're afraid, they're anxious, um, and they have so little control over their lives. Everything is ultimately dependent on these these central distribution networks, whether it's their food, whether it's their employment, uh, you know, they've really become NTC people. You know, that, that meme is, is not just funny, it's accurate. Uh, and I think for that reason, they can't let go of this because it somehow provides them with an anchor. Like now they're part of something, this COVID cult that gives them meaning and somehow helps to, in a really sad and, and, and you know, disabling and pathetic way, give them a sense of meaning in their lives. Well, I'm I'm being an armchair psychiatrist here, but it, it seems part and parcel of identity politics. This is what their identity sure. is tied to, and you know, this is my tribe, and anyone who's not part of my tribe is, you know, somehow an enemy. Sure, you know, and this is unfortunately something that has been a characteristic of American society for a long time. It's this weird duality, which, on the one hand, we've as people long paid uh, honor to, in, in a good way individuality and the worth of the individual. But on the other hand, we're also joiners and group people. I'm just casting about generally here. I'm not saying everybody falls into the category, but people want to be part of something, whether it's a team, whether it's some other thing, you know, the Kiwanis Club. And that has this tendency to make you want to conform to where the outfit. Hold that thought, Eric. We're at the break. We'll be right back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. I do have a link to his website in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Eric, let's talk about the cost of lost opportunity. This is a column you mm-hmm. published recently, and uh, I got to say, this, this one hit the right chords. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I was mulling this the other day, uh, and what, what's... What's referenced by the, the, the title of the article is that if you haven't got money on hand for something, then you don't have the opportunity to use it for another thing. That's what economists call the opportunity cost. And um, a lot of people have 
put away money in things like 401ks and Roth IRAs and pension plans and so on with the expectation that their money will be safe and that it will grow and that when they're uh, of retirement age, they're going to have this money available to them. But now, you know, per our conversation in the last segment, that seems like an increasingly dicey proposition. And a lot of people are rightly freaking out that they put all this money into these things that are tied into this system that seems like it's about to topple over at any time, that it's quite alarming. I'm grateful that over my own life, I've never trusted these things, even when most people did. And rather than put my money into these things, I put them into things that were more under my own control, like land. And I had the opportunity to buy some uh, when, when the farm behind me went up for sale and they parceled it out, precisely because I hadn't put a bunch of money into a 401k or a Roth IRA and didn't have access to it, at least not without having like 50% taken away in taxes. So I was able to make that purchase. And now I've got this tangible thing of value, the land, which even if everything goes to heck, uh, ultimately, it's still valuable. It's valuable in that I can live on it. It's valuable in that I can put animals on it to provide food. I can grow things on it. And that's, I think, something that's very, very important given the way things are potentially headed. Yeah, I I don't like to I don't like to think I'm sparking fear when I acknowledge this, but uh, we are in a real crisis as far as our currency goes. The purchasing power of every dollar shrinks. Just you know, on a, on a, I mean, we we stopped adjusting it by the year. Well, this year inflation was up slightly. No, we're going by the month. Mm-hmm. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if they're yeah. if they're now calculating by the week. So yeah, there's and, there's and some that's painful why approaching. Is. Yeah, that's why Marian and Venezuelan in nature, from what I gather from reading about economics as a layman, the trajectory of inflation is that it increases, increases at, at a not too outrageous rate. It's obnoxious, but it's not, you know, un- unlivable. And then all of a sudden, one day you wake up and it explodes. And that's when you get to the point where it takes a wheelbarrow full of money to buy a loaf of bread. Um, and people think that kind of thing can't happen again. Well, of course it can happen again. The fact that we were in color on TV now instead of black and white doesn't change any of the underlying basic economic facts of life. And it's, it's terrifying to think that something like that potentially could happen. And that's why I think it's a smart policy right now uh, to, to the extent that you can to take your money and your assets and get things of tangible value, physical value, whether it's land, whether it's, it's hard currency, supplies, you name it, anything like that that is under your control. You know, we've reached a, a point in this country where the cultural trust or the what there's a term for it, I can't remember it off the top of my head. Maybe you can. This institutional trust that we once took for granted that by and large, yeah, there was corruption here and there. But by and large, the system was respectable. It was ethical and it wasn't going to ruin you. I think that's gone. I think it's out the window. I think essentially, you know, as they say, we're on our own now and it's terrifying, but it can also be empowering at the same time if you just embrace it and do what you need to do to take care of yourself and take care of your family. Yeah, I I never want to give the impression that, you know, all is lost and, you know, we're basically going to be staggering around in rags, you know, starving, looking at each other with sad faces, you know, because nobody yep. could have seen this coming. Right. It's I think we're very adaptable. I think we're we're remarkably innovative when we have to be. And, and people just need to face the reality that um, a situation has been created over which we don't have control at this point. But there are things mm-hmm. we can do that can mitigate those those bad consequences. And it'll be different. You know, I mean, growing more of your own food, that's a big step for a lot of people, but it's not necessarily a bad one, is it? No, I think it's a very good one. As I say, it's empowering, I think, to recover some of the control that we've lost over our lives by doing these things. And 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 by dint of that, becoming once again more independent rather than dependent to recover some of our own 
self-respect, which arises from being able to handle things and being prepared to deal with things. So many people aren't, and to the degree that they're not, they're rightly terrified and anxious about uh, about things because God knows what's going to happen tomorrow. What's, what's going to happen to the value of my 401k? Well, it depends on this casino called the stock market, which nobody understands except for the people who control the casino. I don't want to be in that position, and I think uh, you know most people probably don't either. No, I would I would agree, but but it requires a willingness to to break with the herd, and and I think that's going to be a hangup for a lot of people. There there's a perceived safety in numbers when you're hidden within the herd, but uh, I don't know how many people perceive that herd is stampeding right off the edge of a cliff, and uh, you still have time to do something. That's exactly the point. That's very well said. There is safety in the herd when the herd is behaving. Uh, non-hysterically. When the herd is just out in the field and the grass is lush and they're grazing and all of the animals are fat and happy, but then the herd panics. And as you say, the herd starts to rush toward the cliff. And at that point, it's good to separate yourself from the herd. Yeah, I don't think anybody would, would regret it. And and again, we're, we're not doing this to, to try to scare people, but just to, to awaken them to, to the realities that things are changing. They're probably going to be more difficult than, than not, at least in the short term. But uh, but we know the things that make life worthwhile, and those are the things I guess I'm going to be focusing on building my life around. Um, I want to pick your I brain so. for a second on, on, on the subject of vehicles, because I have yeah. to admit, one of the things that brings me the greatest peace in life is having a reliable vehicle that I don't have to worry it's going to break down or I know something's going out. And yet uh, sure. that peace of mind is harder than ever to find. Used cars are very difficult to find. New cars are tougher to find. What's what's your take on the, the future of um, of the automotive industry? Is this one going to have to kind of crash and rise from the ashes like a phoenix? Well, yeah, I think so. I think it's fundamentally no longer tenable. Uh, it's reached a stage at which it is divorced from market reality. Its chief customer now is the government, not the car buyer. Uh, everything that you're seeing in the new cars, uh, is being done chiefly because the government mandates and regulations that essentially require the manufacturers to do these things, like these elaborate drivetrains with 48-volt electrical systems and uh, flywheel generator starters and you name it, all of it. Nobody really wants this stuff. It doesn't, it doesn't benefit them particularly. It's just compliance. And that leaves aside, too, the staggering costs and the increasing disposability of these cars. We reached this wonderful point in the late 90s, early 2000s, when cars were never better than they were at that point, when they were incredibly durable and reliable, and you could, you could with confidence, buy a new car and know that, hey, I'm going to be able to drive this thing for the next 15, even 20 years, and probably not have to put, a, put any money into it other than what I have to put into it for things like tires, brakes, and so on. And then that changed. And then they started to electronicize them and big brotherize them, and that's where we are now. So, yeah, I do think it's going to have to crater. And I think what people ought to try to do is – If they have an older vehicle, keep it, hold on to it. There's a reason why used car prices are going through the roof. Uh, It's well worth putting money into something that you've got that's fundamentally sound, but maybe it needs a transmission. Maybe it needs a complete brake overhaul. Uh, Whatever it is, it's worth it relative to buying something that's new. Hold on to it. And if you need a vehicle, keep your ears and eyes open. There are deals out there. Um, I've got a buddy who has a nephew who recently found a literal little old lady car, um, a 2000 and what was it, 2010 Ford Fusion with, with relatively low miles, 70,000 something miles in A1 condition for about 7,000 bucks. So wow. they're still out there. You just have to look for them. Amen. Well, we're coming up fast here on the end of the segment. Uh, Eric, tell people mm-hmm. where they can find your website and what to expect once they get there. 
Sure. It's epautos.com, pretty straightforward, and they'll find all sorts of things pertaining to uh, new and used cars, motorcycles, but also some of these, uh, you know, these more abstract, philosophical, uh, sit around the table and shoot at that kind of issues that you and I talk about every week. Okay. Got, got some great commenters on there, too. He's got a very bright audience, and you, uh, you, dear listeners, should be part of that audience. Eric, I appreciate you joining me each and every Tuesday to kind of suss out the current events of the world. Um, who knows where next week is going to take us, but I sure look forward to talking to you then. Sure. And I appreciate you having me on the show as well. And, you know, again, I hope everybody listening to this takes courage and realizes that it's while fat out there, it, you know, you can take a lot of good from it at the same time. Yep. Yep. I think we've we've won the hardest battle, which is to figure out the difference between right and wrong and free and unfree. Yep. Now it's just a matter of yep. uh, acting on correct principles. Eric, thanks again. Exactly. You bet, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather's been one of my longtime sponsors here on the program. I sure appreciate her and her team. And if you are someone who is uh, in the process of moving to the uh, Intermountain West, if you're going to land in Utah or Idaho, you'll be glad to know her name because she's the one who can help you Get the mortgage that you need in a timely fashion and, of course, at the best rates possible. Now, of course, you probably noticed interest rates are starting to creep up, but the demand for homes is still extremely high. So if you need to make things happen, if time is of the essence, contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, anytime uh, James Bovard publishes something, I like to pay attention. He has been a uh, writer for a long time. He has uh, some fantastic experiences and stories that he likes to share of working within the D.C. Beltway, uh, not as a shill for the uh, establishment, but as an actual journalist seeking out and reporting on things, especially those kind of things where uh, the powerful and those who are connected might be, um, shall we say, abusing their power or otherwise uh, going beyond what they should be allowed to do. So when he has a take on the latest media assault on freedom, I got to go there. I got to see what he has to say. And I'm going to share that with you in the show notes as well at com. This one's called The Latest Media Assault on Freedom and Jim Bovard says, prominent journalists are calling for the media to champion a pro-democracy bias in how they portray politicians and government agencies. But he says, tub-thumping for democracy, or at least for politicians who claim to be pro-democracy, is a poor substitute for exposing the proliferation of government abuses. And he says, freedom will be the victim if journalists grasp a new pretext to portray government as a trustworthy savior. Now, just as an aside, is that not what we saw throughout the entirety of the pandemic? Didn't the media pretty much act as a mouthpiece of, well, you know, government says this and this is what you ought to do. And nobody should question Dr. Fauci. And, of course, this is where we get the birth of the fact checkers and, you know, the the uh, trying to, to 
squash those dissenting opinions, those those refuseniks who wouldn't go along with the official line? Well, let's continue on here. Jim Bovard says, in January, Washington Post columnist Perry Bacon called for a pro-democracy media vigorously describing long-standing Republican tactics such as aggressive gerrymandering as dangers to democracy. Now, Bacon frets because gun-shy editors fail to denounce Republican radicalism in banner headlines. Washington Post media columnist Margaret Sullivan declared that American democracy is teetering is unquestionable due to pro-Trump Republicans requiring a new pro-democracy emphasis to be articulated clearly and fearlessly to readers and viewers. Post columnist Brian Class admits that the media are adopting a pro-democracy bias, effectively meaning, effectively that means being pro-democratic party. But there is no alternative except to unequivocally and unapologetically condemn Republicans. Now, Bovard asks the question, what could possibly go wrong? from journalists pretending that only one political party threatens Americans' rights and liberties. Demonizing one political party tacitly saints their opponents. But both Republicans and Democrats have a long record of unleashing federal agencies and ignoring the subsequent constitutional carnage. So, urging the media to become pro-democracy is reminiscent of a corporation that's almost bankrupt and gambles everything on a desperate Hail Mary pass. He says a June 2021 survey by the Reuters Institute reported only 29% of Americans trusted the news media. Actually, that number surprises me. I thought it would be much lower. The lowest rating of any of the 46 nations surveyed. And a Gallup poll last year revealed that 86% of Americans believed the media was politically biased. So practically, the only folks who don't recognize the bias are the people who share the media's slant. So how does this pro-democracy reporting work in practice? Well, journalists provide readers with a catechism specifying correct beliefs rather than providing facts by which citizens can reach their own conclusions. That's a big difference, right? But the Washington Press Corps was aptly described decades ago as stenographers with amnesia. The political philosophy of most reporters doesn't go beyond orange man bad. In fact, he says many journalists like to slap a halo over politicians and then bask in the reflective glow. You saw this in 2020 and 2021 with top media outlets hailing New York Governor Andrew Cuomo for being far more repressive with his COVID policies than President Donald Trump advocated. I'm going to jump ahead here a little bit because I want to cover a couple of things. Um, He talks about the state media and COVID coverage. The docility of the Washington press corps has been profoundly t- has profoundly tainted their coverage of the pandemic. In a March 11th speech last year on COVID, Biden promised, "I'm using every power I have as president of the United States to put us on a war footing." But he asked, but Bovard asks, "Who was Biden going to war against?" He says, "War footing should have sounded an alarm bell, but media bigwigs were too busy whooping up COVID czar Tony Fauci's latest fearmongering." Journalists applauded rather than vigorously scrutinized whether the new powers Biden claimed actually protected public health. And when Biden announced he would impose a vaccine mandate on all private companies with more than 100 employees, most of the press coverage was laudatory. Now, when the Supreme Court struck down that mandate, much of the press corps was shocked that the justices did not defer to Biden's proclaimed good intentions, you know, like the media did. 
So how can journalists tell who is serving democracy? Well, Jim Bovard says many Washington journalists reflexively presume that being pro-government is the same as being pro-democracy. Next, he talks about all hail the deep state. Now, don't get too wrapped around the axle if you think that sounds conspiratorial. Jim Bovard says most Washington press poobahs show more affection for Leviathan than for freedom. Amen. The Washington Post devotes far more news hold to publishing leaks from FBI officials than to exposing FBI abuses. Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson whooped, God bless the deep state, touting his blind trust in federal agencies with vast secretive powers. Now, nothing could be more perilous to, to the truth than encouraging journalists to pirouette as saviors when they grovel to the powers that be. Pro-democracy media is a threat to liberty because it will ignore or downplay abuses committed by purportedly pro-democracy rulers. So rather than rigorously scrutinizing Biden's proposals, the media presumes his pursuit of vast power, well, that's just proof of his benevolence. And Bovard says pro-democracy reporting will be uplift at its worst. It's no harmless error to portray politicians, or at least Democrats, as more honorable or honest than they are. The Biden administration has signaled plans to make both the FBI and the IRS far more intrusive. Will pro-democracy media outlets refrain from mentioning past constitutional debacles by those agencies? Will it be pro-democracy to pretend new scandals don't actually exist? I mean, after all, that recipe worked for the media and for Obama. By the way, he asks, which federal agencies are qualified to lead the fight against disinformation. Since that's becoming a big thing here, we've got to hold these super spreaders of mis- and disinformation to account with clear, transparent, and consistently applied policies. Okay, well, who's going to lead that crusade? Should the Pentagon be in the lead, despite its profound deceit of Americans and members of Congress regarding the pending collapse of the Afghan army in the summer of 2021? Should the Centers for Disease Control be in charge? despite deceiving and endangering Americans by refusing to count so-called breakthrough infections resulting from the snowballing failure of Pfizer vaccines to protect people from contracting COVID. So, in the end here, Bovard says, when did Washington reporters become qualified to serve as grand inquisitors for democracy, casting judgment on every politician and proposal? Most reporters have the same level of intellectual curiosity as the average lottery ticket buyer. Reporters react to the word bipartisan like cocaine addicts desperate for another political virtue signal. In fact, he says the Hunter Biden laptop recipe for saving democracy, that's the latest crock from the media elite. Jim Bovard says journalists can provide an invaluable service to self-government by providing citizens with sufficient information that they can then pass their own judgment on government policies and aspiring tinhorn dictators. But he reminds us the press should vigorously investigate and expose federal crimes regardless of who is president. See, this is one of the reasons why I just have a tough time believing that, uh, yeah, the uh, 2020 election really was, you know, on the up and up, and the people who are insisting that there was absolutely nothing, you know, shady about it, They're the same ones, you know, who did a complete 180 the moment Trump was out of the White House and Biden was in. But I'm sure we can trust him. I mean, they lied to us about everything else. They they wouldn't tell us, you know, any lies about that or about Ukraine, right? 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A shout-out to HSLAmmo.com, one of my great sponsors here on the program. By the way, there are links in my show notes. We'll take you to each one of my sponsors' websites or uh, to, to their email, as the case may be. In this case, you can just click on the HSL Ammo links, uh, HSLAmmo.com link, that is, and uh, see exactly what HSL Ammo has to offer. Quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. If that's something that you would consider, you know, a good thing to have, I would ask you, please consider doing business with them. Well, every time you're standing at the pump, watching those numbers roll higher and higher, you're probably feeling a bit of pain. Fact of the matter is, we all are. And you need to remember that to that pain you're feeling, that higher cost, I think we've seen the price of gas more than double in the last year, it is tied directly to any number of official policies, taxes and other uh, regulatory policies. Got a great article here from Joaquin Book. This was published by the Mises website, uh, Mises Institute, rather, Mises.org. Lighting the gas under European feet, how politicians and journalists get energy wrong. And he starts with a quote from Doomberg. We live in a time where few understand how things get made. It's fine not to know where stuff comes from, but it isn't fine to not know where stuff comes from while dictating to the rest of us how the economy should be, should be run. Well, that's a good point. Joaquin Book says 85% of human energy usage comes from burning things. Either plants or trees grown in a geologically recent past or plants or trees and decomposed animals from ancient times. Solar, wind, hydro, geothermal, etc. All the things that occupy a climate-conscious citizen, activist, or politician's dreams are frizzles around the edges. Human civilization is powered by combustion. Human beings are a fossil fuel burning civilization. Now, you can take away the civilization part, which seems to be the end goal for some environmentalists, but bar that, you can't take away the fuel or the fossil fuel part. He says, if we only listened to our energy overlords preaching, we would get a very different impression of what the world is like. Wind turbines powering all those electrified vehicles on our roads and <clears throat> solar panels and panels rather and batteries of immense capacities light and heat our homes. Dirty oil and polluting coal are out. Green, clean, and smart machines on the way in. But Joaquin Book says nothing could be further from the truth. Renewables don't power our societies, and they're not about to anytime soon. And the fact that they're not isn't a policy choice. It's not greedy capitalism preventing this utopian or dystopian vision. First, he says some housekeeping. Energy is not the same as electricity. Electricity is a secondary energy source derived from primary energy sources through a conversion process, either combustion or turbine spinning. The 85% figure above is for energy use. And the bombastic figures in the press about the massive growth and expense of, or expanse rather, of renewables are for electricity, which is just a subset of all the world's energy use, some 20%. Oil, coal, and gas for transport, heating, fertilizers, and construction dwarf the symbolic solar panels governments paid people to place on their roof. Solar panels and wind turbines produce a minor part of the electricity needs, but they do nothing to address the larger energy needs. 
You see the difference? In contrast, fossil fuels are energy-dense, reliable, on-demand sources of either energy or electricity, and we've excelled both at storing and transporting them. Dreams of a green revolution per the energy theorist Vaclav Smil were always mirages. Quote, we are a fossil-fueled civilization whose technical and scientific advances, quality of life, and prosperity rest on the combustion of huge quantities of fossil carbon. We cannot simply walk away from this critical determinant of our fortunes in a few decades, never mind years, end quote. So Joaquin Book says instead of suddenly facing an adversary rich in raw materials and fossil fuels, instead, rather, suddenly facing an adversary rich in raw materials and fossil fuels, he says the West's talking heads doubled down on their green dreams. From behind comfortable newspaper desks, heated and electrified by natural gas, It's remarkably easy to say things like, well, the new reality is that we have to go all the way to universal electrification even faster, powered by 100% renewable energy with green hydrogen filling the gaps. This is from Andreas Kluth at Bloomberg. Joaquin Book says, for the New Yorker, John Cassidy recently told us that we must prevent future Putins from trying to hold the world to energy ransom, at least one worthy outcome of the tragedy that is Ukraine. In a powerful speech in the middle of the Russia flurry in March, Isabel Schnabel of the executive board at the European Central Bank rallied for renewable power. Quote, every solar power, every solar panel rather installed, every hydropower plant built and every wind turbine added to the grid are taking us a step closer to energy independence and a greener economy. Our dependence on fossil fuel or fossil energy sources rather is not only considered a peril to our planet, It's also increasingly seen as a threat to national security and our values of liberty, freedom, and democracy. End quote. Now, Joaquin Book points out, Schnabel is luckily in control of nothing less than Eurozone's printing press and one-upped by a fellow German, the reality-challenged finance minister, Christian Lindner, taught us that renewable electricity is the energy of freedom. But what he failed to understand is that renewable energy or renewable electricity generation, rather, in Germany requires boatloads and pipeloads of Russian gas, Russian oil, and Russian commodities, the steel and cement, to construct their precious wind towels, towers. Well, that steel and cement are made from coal, not even counting the extreme heat needed to reshape the steel and iron that makes up its body. I know, this is, this is the, the part of green that, that we really don't see. The batteries for your electric car? Talk to me about how clean that process is of mining the, the lithium for them and, and, and the other rare earth minerals. Joaquin Book points out a single wind turbine uses thousands of kilograms of nickel in its shaft and gear, plus some rare earth minerals from some pretty unclean sources. The, the gigantic structures, hundreds of meters tall and much too clunky to easily transport, are erected and moved there by machines that swallow diesel by the gallon. Fossil fuels are machine food, as Alec Epstein, Alex Epstein's fond of saying, and nothing drinks petrol like the machines that power a thirsty wind energy industry. When renewable sources are added to the electricity grid in large quantities, the cost of electricity goes up. Not down, because their fickle reliance on weather requires them to be backstopped by thermal plants that run on coal or natural gas. So the more renewables you add, the more natural gas you need. Now he goes on here to make the case that actually fossil fuels aren't optional. 
I'm going to skip ahead here because we'll, we'll run out of time otherwise, but I, I strongly encourage you, take a look at this article. He has the charts, the graphs, the graphs rather, the studies that seem to back this up very well. And the idea is, you know, that uh, we're not going to step away from fossil fuels. It's not going to be this clean push. Well, we'll just, now that everybody's paying so much for gas, they're going to be glad to get away from it. It's not going to work that way. And and the Europeans right now are paying a huge price in terms of uh, their their energy costs. That's going to be us before too long. So here's the bottom line. He says the world isn't weaning itself off fossil fuels. It can't. And it shouldn't. More importantly, he says cleaner energy uh, aren't exactly options on a shopping menu. Available as inconsequential choices the way consumers might choose Doritos over Pringles or, you know, choose a new toothpaste. Joaquin Book says it's becoming increasingly clear to more and more people that withdrawing from fossil fuels for environmental reasons is not a choice. A society in a world of 8 billion people more advanced than that powered by a horse and buggy cannot do without the explosive power of fossil fuels. Now, again, I've only scratched the surface on this article from Joaquin Book, but uh, he makes a pretty strong case for why we can't just step away from them. And the thing that I have, the I, this is probably what gives me the, the toughest time, is all the, the energy crunch that we're feeling right now, the higher costs, the, you know, the low availability of, of more uh, more oil, for instance, you know, why Why is the president shopping around to Venezuela? Why is the president shopping around to, you know, other places that typically we wouldn't be doing business with when we could be more energy independent? And I really believe it's this is a manufactured crisis. In fact, I think this is one of numerous manufactured crises that have been forced on us or are in the process of being forced on us. Now, you and I can't just go out and start our own, you know, uh, oil wells and oil refineries and, you know, distill our own gasoline and all that kind of stuff, it's not going to happen. But we can certainly become armed with knowledge to when some politician presents us this uh, panacea of, well, you know, if we just switch over to electricity, everything's going to be great. you got to understand why that's not the case and why we're being gaslit. This article from Joaquin Book will go a long way towards uh, helping you understand why we can't have that to clean energy utopia just yet. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. Looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where we seek clarity. Not for the sake of some political solution necessarily, but just simply to know for ourselves right from wrong. And to proceed accordingly. That means you got to think for yourself. You got to think clearly. You got to think independently. That means you can't take even what I tell you at face value. You've got to be willing to study it out for yourself. But if you're willing to do this, I can promise you it's worth every bit of effort. And it will make you freer in the end. 
So with that in mind, let's dive right in, shall we? I wanted to share with you a, a, a great article from Paul Rosenberg. And I want to start with this question. Let's say somebody comes to the realization that they are living in a state of slavery. And they want to uh, they want to seek after their freedom. What is it that brings them to the point of realizing, hey, you know what? I'm not in a place where I want to be. Or I'm in a place where where someone is is exercising unjust or oppressive authority over me. It's moral clarity. You know, I think about the, the quote from Harriet Tubman, um, and I don't know if she actually said this. This is attributed to her, and if she said it, it's a very revealing quote. She talks about how I helped free hundreds of slaves, and she says I could have freed thousands if I could only have convinced them that they were slaves. And we're talking about people living in a time of actual chattel slavery, meaning they were property. And she had a tough time convincing them, you're a slave. The difference between those who sought freedom and those who didn't believe they were slaves was the ones who sought freedom had moral clarity. So this is about the beauty and simplicity of moral clarity. And Paul Rosenberg starts by referencing his novel, The Breaking Dawn, which opens in the voice of a man who believes himself to be the luckiest man ever born. In fact, he explains a bit about his gifts and then points the reader to the greatest of his blessings, that of clarity. In fact, he asks the reader to imagine living through their life a second time, knowing in advance when all the traumas would erupt and experiencing far less fear than everyone else. This, he says, might give them a sense of how things were for him. And he concludes with this. So a constantly healthy body and an exceptional mind were tremendous gifts for which I'm deeply grateful, but they were second to the blessing of clarity. Now, Paul Rosenberg says the one type of clarity that is open to us all is moral clarity, which it turns out happens to be the most important kind. He says to gift our children with moral clarity is to clear a path through life for them, a path that eliminates the thorns, weeds, and underbrush that hinders most men and women. Said differently, by gifting our children with moral clarity, we save them from the lifelong pain of confusion and uncertainty. Now, moral clarity makes us happier and it makes us better. In fact, he says, if you want to make human beings behave well, job number one is to help them see clearly, to give them moral clarity. And what's also crucial to understand is that attaining moral clarity is not complicated. It's actually very simple, provided that you value it more than its primary obstruction. So how simple is it? Well, he says, in the face of the shelves full of books on ethics, law libraries, and the like, the idea that morality is simple can appear ridiculous. But Paul Rosenberg says, what I'll tell you today is that nearly all of our difficulties with morality are artificial, resting on primitive and outdated dogma. More or less, every great moral teacher over thousands of years has come to the same basic formula for morality. I mean, you think about this. It's been championed by the Greeks, the Chinese, the Hebrews, and the Christians, as well as many others, and it's a supremely simple dictum to live by. The moral formulation, of course, is the golden rule. And as we know, this rule is almost trivially simple. What is hateful to you, do to no one. Or you may prefer a slight variant. Treat your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul Rosenberg says these simple statements can solve 99% of the moral questions humans face. 
and living by them would additionally solve nearly all the practical difficulties we face. Now, he says, before I get to the reasons why people can't just use the golden rule and make their lives simpler and better, I'd like you to imagine living by the golden rule alone, without weaseling away from it. He says, with moral clarity, we wouldn't magically know the absolute right and wrong in every situation, but we'd have a simple tool for dividing right from wrong. Deciding what was right or wrong would merely be a matter of comparisons. In the vast majority of cases, we'd cut right through the now normal confusion and arrive at a decision we could confidently rely upon. And in most cases, we'd divide between wise and foolish conclusions in mere seconds. It wouldn't be entirely effortless, but it wouldn't be taxing either. He says human life is complex, of course. And so crafting best responses to our situations would remain challenging. But we'd almost immediately define the moral pivot of any given situation. And we could move forward into responses both confidently and comfortably. In actual practice, this would improve not only our judgments, but also our intellects. Now, he says, you'll notice that I've said moral clarity was simple, but I didn't say it was easy. And that's because at present, it can sometimes be frightening. In a neutral moral, in a neutral world, rather, moral clarity would be easy. But this, unfortunately, isn't a neutral world. It's a world featuring a hard bias against moral clarity. So here, bluntly, is the crux of the matter. Once you remove the position of the ruler... Most of our struggles with ethics and morality collapse into the golden rule. That's the difficulty. To attain moral clarity, we must ignore that which refuses to be ignored. Those who refuse to be ignored demand that we reference outside standards and we follow them without questioning. We are pushed into this with fear and with confusion. But he says the golden rule then remains available to us inside our homes. But relying on it in the public sphere is a punishable offense. Politics is almighty in public, and politics stands as as an open violation of the golden rule. The operative statement of the political realm being, do what we say, or we'll hurt you. Now he says, I'm not going to spend time defending the statement above from all the knee-jerk responses it triggers. I've made my point, and whoever wishes to wrestle with it, uh, can. whoever wishes to can wrestle with it himself or herself. But he says there are substantive change challenges rather to the golden rule, but they revolve around wildly unlikely scenarios involving lifeboats, railroad switches, and choosing between who lives and who dies. Now, these are impossible choices that almost no one ever faces. To take them as some sort of overarching concern is silly. They're tragic exceptions that one in 10 million of us might face. They're nothing to base a life upon. Now, there are other desperate challenges, such as, so is it okay for a masochist to hurt you since he likes hurting himself? These are, again, to be blunt, attempts to remove the golden rule by fixating upon a single imagined flaw amongst hundreds of clear and beneficial applications. The golden rule obviously assumes a sane human being. So a final thought here. He says, I'll close with a brilliant comment from Eric Fromm in his book, You Shall Be As Gods. He says, I think it's worthy of careful consideration. Quote, The person whose conscience is essentially autonomous does the right things, not by forcing himself to obey the voice of the internalized authority, but because he enjoys doing what is right, even though often he will need some practice in following his principles before he can fully enjoy his action. End quote. That quote alone 
is worth some serious contemplation. And Paul Rosenberg says, this is what we give to our children and to ourselves by daring to choose moral clarity. So let me translate this into what, what I hope this means or what I hope this could mean to you, the listener. Right now, you and I are faced with choices of varying degrees of difficulty on a daily basis. And one of the toughest choices is whether or not to go along with the crowd just for the sake of expediency and avoiding criticism or ostracization or, you know, who knows, maybe even, you know, losing your job or being marginalized because you're not chanting in unison with the crowd. But we need to be the kind of individuals who have sufficient moral clarity that when we are invited to do something that is wrong or harmful, or simply not rooted in reality, we have the courage to sweetly but boldly refuse to participate. I have so much love and respect for Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and I think probably the greatest uh, lesson that I have learned from him is, you know, we're not going to stop evil from coming into the world. None of us individually is powerful enough to just put our hand up and say, stop, you know, you're going to go no further. You shall not pass kind of a moment. We can't stop it on a large scale. Lies, nope, we can't stop them either. But the one thing we have absolute power to control is whether or not that evil comes into the world or that lie is perpetuated through us. We can refuse to participate. But you got to have moral clarity to know when it's time to withhold your consent. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I'd like to thank SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com for being one of my sponsors. For those of you who are into sewing, quilting, embroidery, you understand this is not just a hobby. This is not just a pleasant way to pass the time. It's, it's a wonderful way to create And, of course, Sewing and Quilting Center has every possible machine you could use from entry-level sewing machines for under $200 up to the big five-figure, you know, long-arm quilting machines with which you can create absolute works of art. They service what they sell. They can train you to use what you purchase through them. They've got all the supplies to make it happen. And best of all, they're a family-owned business that's been in operation since 1984. Please click on the link especially for my listeners in southern Utah, if you or someone you know is into the sewing arts, you need to know about SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. Let's talk for a moment about how freedom survives. In fact, let me pose this question. Can it survive in a society without virtue? I know the founding generation had some pretty clear thoughts on this, but I'd like to turn to a writer by the name of Michael Finch writing for AmericanThinker.com, who wonders what recovering America's greatness will require. Michael Finch says this free-falling into a new America is becoming increasingly unlivable. For anyone over a certain age, this America, this culture, and this society have become beyond foreign. I mean, that hits home for me. I don't know if you feel that too, but I think he's right on the money. This is not the country we grew up in, and it's not the country we want to die in. It's alien. 
This obsession over hyper, the obsession over hyper-individualism is turning surreal. But then, is it not inevitable? Are these not the seeds planted of their own, of our own destruction, rather? He says, there's a reason the Founding Fathers agonized about what would happen with freedom in a society without virtue. So where do we go, and what will we become? Now, Michael Finch says, the country's still out there. That America that we remember, the one that was proud and strong, but also assured, humble, the one that embodied a quiet patriotism that didn't need boasting and over-the-top halftime shows and flybys and millions in ad spends. We rightly hesitated at the thought of empire, of marching off to endless wars. Our love of nation just was in our blood, our quiet demeanor. We knew who we were. He says, my thoughts wander off to driving through the Wisconsin farmland, the rolling hills and bluffs, the rivers and woods, the nestled bergs, the tall corn and wheat, dairy farms and hollows, the rising wind and late summer chills, the dry harvest and burning leaves. The weather turns cold and the weather turns and cold chills. He says, I reminisce on the hardy and sturdy stock who tend those fields, assured and solid as old as the centuries of our past, from first to come ashore across the colonies in all their glory. How long before the road closes before me? The long last ride, the final push across valley clear, the river crossed mightily and fallen back in mirror gone into the receding fog of our past. How long before our final look passed? The fading hills and trees rise down into our forgotten history. He asks, how do we recover what's been lost? Or is that a fool's errand? For time in its continuum races forward, the need, the urge, and the desire to pull it back to retreat is nothing but a dream turned into saddening nostalgia, bitter, torn, and tears, and lost remembrances. In fact, he says, beware of old photos. They're just a snapshot made to fool us into a false sense of what was. He says, I glance at two old photos, one of Van Nuys Boulevard and another of a shopping center in Panorama City, both parts of the San Fernando Valley in the city of Los Angeles. Now, these photos are a half century old. They speak of a long ago part of America, one idyllic, flawed, maybe, but simple, a different time and era. But they speak of something. Now, he says, again, that nostalgia, it can fool us, but drive down those streets today, Van Nuys or Roscoe Boulevard, one sees in block after block a cesspool of drugs, graffiti, homeless encampments, boarded-up stores, and rampant crime. It speaks of thousands of streets and towns across the country, the fallen, the despair, the hopelessness. And he asks, do we not care? Does it not mean anything to see America turn into a third-world country? Wild thrushes glide backwards, falling into the wind, cold snap, whipping fast to tears rolling, and then ice on sheathed skin, bare and bracing against the coming night. The things those eyes have seen, the cries and lost greatness, the sad turning downward as all that was once held true and right has been torn and ripped and attacked as ghosts of an evil past. What had built this nation into a city on a hill and beacon is now ridiculed as nothing. Nothing but a graveyard wavering on the guilty carcass of a cancerous beginning and the founder's dreams that we are taught are nothing but nightmares. He says, gaze at a Thomas Cole painting. Listen to a Samuel Barber composition. Walk along the wide Missouri River. Get lost in the poems of Walt Whitman. Study the life of George Washington. Stand in the fields at Antietam. Recite Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural and don't dare apologize for any of it. Not a thing. 
Not a darn minute of our history needs to be sullied by what the haters of our great nation are doing today. Michael Finch says, I see myself in my aging years, seeing this America race by, sitting on a porch, wondering how we let it all go. He says, maybe it was all inevitable. Too many forces against us, globalization and greed allowed for the destruction of the American heartland and industrial base. Our love and embrace of radical individualism, once the source of such greatness in the building of the American spirit, have run rampant. The community and family are dissolving, the churches are emptying, we identify as whatever or whomever we please. We celebrate our own destruction. He says, the leaves fall gently, golds and reds and vibrant colors downward settle as the sun recedes in the west. The eastern sky turns dark and evening comes on in all its quietness and the relief of a long autumn day. The last days of Indian summer fall backwards into a past that yearns and pulls at my heart. Michael Finch says, I become that old man, that character from a Wendell Berry novel in Port William that looks past and beyond, gazing downward for the longest time, lamenting what has been lost, and praying for the coming generations that they may recover that which was our greatness. He's kind of a poet, isn't he? He actually is a poet, I guess, uh, president of the David Horowitz Freedom Center. Again, Michael Finch writing this article, but he, he raised some very interesting questions, which is why I, I share this with you. And and sadly, I'm not trying to anger, you know, Trump supporters, but make America great again. I know it was a great slogan, and it rallied a lot of people to the idea that, you know, America is and should be great. But I sometimes wonder what we define as that greatness because I, I tend to, to think that the greatness was something more than simply, well, we have the power to project military might anywhere, anytime in the world, at any moment of our choosing. I don't think that's the kind of greatness we're talking about. And when it comes to recovering that greatness, I don't think that means we need to somehow transport ourselves back in time to whatever, 1791, you know, to, to, to attain that, that sense of, of greatness. I think the greatness was found in the idea of liberty. And if you're the kind of person who wonders, can we recover the things that made this a great nation? Well, the principles and practices of liberty are going to have to be a part of that equation. Now, there's another part, too. This is the part that makes people uncomfortable, but I'm going to go ahead and put it out there. With a firm reliance upon divine providence. These are the words from the Declaration of Independence. That's why the founding generation declared their independence and declared they would stand up and they would govern themselves. Liberty was the goal, but they had their hearts turned to God, and that was their source of strength, and that was their source of moral clarity as to why it was right for them to stand up and protect and defend their God-given rights and to assume governance of themselves when the King of England was behaving in an oppressive fashion. So I guess what I'm saying in so many words is, you want to see America's greatness return? We need to turn our hearts towards God. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to Dixie Chiropractic. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. You can visit his website at DixieChiro.com. If you're dealing with car accident injuries, you need to check in with Dixie Chiropractic. If you have neuropathy, check this out. Here's a $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. Again, that's at DixieChiro.com. Or bulging herniated discs. Ooh, that can be painful. Dealt with that myself. Here's a $99 intro special, two treatments plus massage. Just get in touch with Dixie Chiropractic and Dr. Ward Wagner. That's DixieChiro.com. There's also a link provided in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Well, you know, as much as politicians and medical authorities and media talk about, well, we're looking at some of the damage done, you know, by the pandemic, isn't it interesting that the truth is it was their response to the pandemic that actually caused the harm? Not the virus, but the official response. Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute wonders, why won't they admit failure? And particularly, he's pointing a finger here at uh, at Bill Gates, starting out saying, it seems strange one of the world's richest men would feel the need for a book tour to boost sales. But that's what Bill Gates is doing, granting a series of interviews with deferential journalists. Now, the thesis of his book and the interviews is that we should have locked down harder, sooner, and more precisely. Plus, the vaccines need to be better next time. But Jeffrey Tucker says, make no mistake, in his view, there is no overall failure in the whole theory of pandemic control that they deployed two years ago. That is sound. Now, to be sure, mistakes were made, but we can only learn from them, which is why public health agencies need more research, more more intelligence, more power, more deference. Okay, Bill. Now, in this interview... Bill grants that he does not know the demographics risk of the pathogen, even though the whole world knew in late January. It's a link to a Twitter video, but uh, wow. And in this interview, Bill Gates also grants that there was no chance of eradication of COVID and also that young people don't get sick very often, which again makes people wonder about the reasons for the extended lockdowns from which the poor suffered most. Now, Bill Gates has regrets, but hey, who doesn't? His theme is the same as we're hearing all over the planet. Jeffrey Tucker says, yes, they're saying it could have been done better, but the people who did this have only learned from their errors and they'll do better next time. In fact, even on vaccines, Bill is somehow sure that the next time the vaccine will stop infection and spread will be just one dose and probably won't even be an injection. As if these points are as if these are points that no one could have have hope for in this round, and as if all this is just a matter of funding more research and development, like Windows Millennium Edition, it'll get better. So again, the theory is right, and so is the method. Why they just need another chance. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, think for a moment of other failed experiments in human history. One that comes to mind is the Bolshevik Revolution. Its leader, Vladimir Lenin, never really expected to take power, much less be put in charge of implementing the system he'd spent a career promoting. He was asked in his writings to speak to what communism would mean. He answered in 1917 that it's really not an issue just to make the whole economy work like the post office. After taking power, confiscating privately owned shops and land, nationalizing industry, setting prices by dictate... Everything fell apart very rapidly. Energy supplies collapsed. Food shortages were everything. 
The failure was obvious to the whole population because people were starving. So Lenin went back to the canonical, the canonical tests, rather, and noticed that Karl Marx had said communism only comes after the stage of history of industrialization. Now, Russia was mostly an agricultural economy. He said that the answer was obvious. He had to make electrification a reality for all Russians. Then communism would work. So in December 1920, he gave a speech in which he said, communism is Soviet power plus the electrification of the whole country. But that, of course, didn't work either. So the next year, he pushed the new economic policy, the end of lockdowns, so to speak. Markets were newly tolerated and the war on property mostly stopped and the economy revived. Now, this happened over the following six years, after which Stalin came to power and discovered that Soviet power was even more important than Lenin thought. Power over normalcy. That was the choice made by the party. They never admitted error, and it would be many decades until Stalinism was finally repudiated, and long after that, before the failure in total would be largely granted, although even to this day, a vast number of Russians truly regret the dialing back of the empire in 1989 and following. Putin himself recalls the glory of the Soviet past. The point here, Jeff Tucker's pointing out, is that it's always the same with these people. The theory of despotic rule is fine, it's just the implementation that we have to tweak. But the issue of failing plans from elites has vexed rulers from time immemorial. We live in such times today, arguing on a larger global basis than ever. They said they would suppress a virus, but everyone got it anyway. They said they would print and spend their way out of the lockdown recession, but now we have inflation plus recession. They said they would minimize the social and economic carnage, but it's everywhere. No one has taken responsibility. No one has admitted error. Or more precisely, what people like Bill Gates say now is that their theory was fine and their plans were brilliant, but there were periodic missteps in judgment owing to a lack of information. But keep trusting them because they'll get better at this. Just wait and see. Now, at least we aren't going the way of China. Xi Jinping announced to the party Congress over the weekend he will tolerate no dissent against the zero, zero COVID ideal. The pathogen will be crushed everywhere it appears. China, now, if you can believe the official data, has one of the lowest rates of infection of anywhere in the world. That means that another billion or so people still will get it. And that means rolling lockdowns for the duration. If this really happens, the great promise of this great country will be torn down by the arrogance and crankishness of one single dictator. Now, that's a tremendous tragedy, one that will have a profoundly negative impact on the global economy for years to come. Meanwhile, Jeffrey Tucker says it's become infuriating to see mainstream news sources talk about all the unfolding disasters all around us and to pretend like no one could have anticipated this. Here's a quote from the New York Times. Quote, across the country, hospital emergency departments have become boarding wards for teenagers who pose too great a risk to themselves or others to go home. They have nowhere else to go. Even as the crisis has intensified, the medical system has failed to keep up and the options for inpatient and intensive outpatient psychiatric treatment have eroded sharply. Nat nationally, rather, the number of residential treatment facilities for people under the age of 18 fell, from five, fell to 592 in 2020 from 848 in 2012. That's a 30% decline. 
according to the most recent federal government survey. The decline is partly a result of well-intentioned policy changes that did not foresee a surge in mental health cases. Social distancing rules and labor shortages during the pandemic have eliminated additional treatment centers and beds, experts say. End quote. Now, Jeff Tucker says it's, also, it's almost difficult to keep up with the ongoing disasters taking place this day. Let's talk about the impending shortage in electricity, the stuff we're all supposed to be using as a replacement for fossil fuels in the brave new world created by our lords and masters. Wall Street Journal reports in a piece that uh, largely went unnoticed that the risk of electricity shortages is rising throughout the U.S. as traditional power plants are being retired more quickly than they can be replaced by renewable energy and battery storage. Power grids are feeling the strain as the U.S. makes a historic transition from conventional power plants fueled by coal and natural gas to cleaner forms of energy such as wind and solar power. And aging nuclear plants are slated for retirement in many parts of the country. So in summary, another plan, another central plan, born out of the arrogance and the presence, seems to be on the verge of complete failure, even to the point of blackouts. Like, a third, like the third world has experienced for many years, green energy is becoming no energy. Zero emissions is becoming zero power. Now, he says, looking back, there's nothing terribly surprising about any of the stuff that we're dealing with here. It's a consequence of safety culture, arrogant elites, and a belief that rich, powerful, and intelligent people can manage the world better than the rest of us. We've been here many times in history, and it's always foreshadowed a long period of suffering. Lenin failed just as Gates, Powell, Fauci, and Saki have failed, along with hundreds and thousands of others who put themselves in a position to deploy a crazy experiment in the eradication of liberty. And they're all culpable, but none will admit it. Why? Pride, sure, but also fear. Fear of the public outcry. Jeffrey Tucker says, Few things are more dangerous to the future of humanity than a failed and humiliated ruling class that still possesses power. They cannot and will not admit error, so their only plan is to double and triple down on failure. The term scorched earth is usually used metaphorically, but maybe this time... It will become real. It's a marvelous article. You'll find it in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back once again. And a quick shout-out here to lifesavingfood.com. I understand that uh, Kendall's doing some pretty good business these days. That's a good thing in the sense that that means people are getting prepared. It's also a little bit unsettling in that uh, people are realizing, hey, I should probably do something to get prepared. Well, if you've come to that realization... Click on the link I provide in my show notes under sponsors, lifesavingfood.com. It's not just food storage, but also emergency preparedness and survival gear. And and you'll find a lot of stuff there that really makes a lot of sense. Ways to filter your water, ways to cook with solar, ways to prepare for the unexpected. Which it looks like we may have uh, some some pretty unexpected stuff (laughs) to deal with in the not-so-distant future. 
So I want to beat the drum for just a few more minutes here on the idea of what if lockdown policies were to return? Because as far as I understand, they are still on the table. I know that most of us have gone back to living our lives. Most of us are, you know, in a, in a fairly normal state of mind these days. I know when I go out, um, really life looks pretty normal. You don't see people, you know, dutifully lined up six feet away from each other. You see very, very few masks. Nobody's being hassled if they are wearing the mask. Nobody's hassling you if you don't have a mask. It's just, you know, it, it feels good. It's nice to see that, uh, that there's some semblance of normalcy. But I don't believe for a moment that the people who pushed the lockdown policies, the people who still have to show why, they, why we need them, you know, I, I think they're just waiting for the next opportunity to clamp down and clamp down even harder. And that concerns me. I want to share with you a, a column by uh, El Gato Malo, Blaming the Victim. And I share this with you, not so much to get your blood pressure up, but to make sure that you recognize when your abuser is engaging in abuse and then blaming you. Well, you made me do this. El Gato Malo says, the abusive spouse beats his partner senseless and then blames her. Why do you make me do this to you? It's a pathology so common, it's actually a trope. And yet it's one people fall for over and over. Alienate them and tell them this is their fault and that they made me do this and that gaslighting starts to take. The rules start to seem like something objective and needful instead of something capriciously inflicted upon them. Well, yeah, but we'd never fall for that. Really? The same manipulative game was just played out at a societal scale across the globe. And most of society knuckled under and fell for it. They participated in it, enabled it, or at the very least allowed it and went along to get along. For years, very few stood up because that's how abuse from powerful entities work. That's why we need to understand it so it can't be pushed on us again. Now here, El Gato Malo shares the, the headline from, I guess this, is, this looks like a British paper. It's time to punish Britain's 5 million vaccine refuseniks. They put us all at risk of more restrictions, says Andrew Neal, so why shouldn't we curb some of their freedoms? Stop and really examine this framing, says El Gato Malo. They put us all at risk of more restrictions, so it's okay to persecute them. This literally casts the issue as one of self-defense. They're putting us in harm's way, so we get to attack. Now, even leaving aside the manifestly clear issue that vaccines have not worked to stop the spread in the slightest and almost certainly are making it worse, this framing is still completely false. They're not putting anyone at risk of restrictions. And note, this is what was chosen as the risk, not COVID, state-sponsored sanction. The unvaxxed do not want restrictions, nor do they have the power to impose them. That power lies with the state, and that is who is threatening people. Therefore, Andrew's argument is nothing like self-defense and possesses no moral justification to abridge rights. The government threatens Andrew, and so Andrew feels justified in persecuting other citizens also being threatened while trying to assign the blame for that threat upon them. I mean, there could be no clearer-cut case of blaming the victim. So, choosing to be unvaxxed did not break any social contract or infringe upon the rights of others. 
the unvaxxed simply asked to be left alone. And it was the state that broke the contract that seeks to take the rights and liberty of uh, take rights and liberty. And for this crime of government, Andrew gleefully wants to declare the other victims outlaw. It's time to punish the refuseniks. Now, keep in mind, this man is the chairman of the Spectator newspaper, and he's the worst kind of collaborator and simping bully. He gets bullied from the top, and instead of pushing back or taking a stand, he turns on the other victims and asks them to curry favor and seek status and privilege. He is literally that craven older brother who, when Dad comes home drunk, tattles on you for watching TV and then gleefully goes to get Father his belt to give you a thrashing and then stand by enraptured while you catch a beating. He has identified with the aggressor and sought safety and status by aiding and abetting abusers and then has the gall to tell you it was your fault. Elgato Malo says these people are deeply sick. Their morality is twisted and toxic. It's what happens when you take the dark triad traits of Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and narcissism and intersect them with congenital cowardice. They love blaming you and seeing you published. Their profession of love and sadness have to do such things as... Uh, their profession of love and of sadness that to, to have to do these kind of things has the sincerity of crocodile tears shed over a hyena laugh track. And this is why there is no place in a civil society for them. They live for this. Their hands are not held by morality or empathy or decency, but from fear of consequence. They always wanted to do things like this, torture animals, children, neighbors, punish them. But people would rightly have called them monsters, and this is low status. They fear loss of status and more than they crave the delicious and more than they crave the delicious dark triad delights of being beastly to people. This is why COVID revealed so many so thoroughly. It removed the check and displaced the balance. Being beastly became high status. And so they went for it with gusto. They could act upon these naughty narcissistic, narcissistic needs rather, and claim them as virtue. They could side with the abusers and blame the victim, perhaps even to claim to champion the victim. But this was simply too tantalizing a temptation to pass up. Your masks were forced on, but theirs came off. Self-interest and other oppression were on naked display. And when such people come candid and tell you who they truly are, you would do well to believe them and do better to remember. Because never in living memory have so many truly amoral and vicious people from political demagogues to the overwrought media enablers who shudder ecstatically as they amplify such messages shown their true colors. Live and in glaring 8K, unchecked by opprobrium, they vilify as they victimize. There's a nice screenshot, too, of Pierre Trudeau being interviewed by a young woman. And he's telling her, these people, meaning the unvaccinated, they don't believe in scientists. They're often misogynists, often racist. He's also talking about the truckers, too. It's a small group that muscles in and muscles in, and we have to make a choice in terms of the country, in terms of the leaders. Do we tolerate these people? Oh, man, the words that pop into mind about this guy, not something I could say, <laughs> not something I would say in, in mixed company. But you look at the interviewer in this picture. She's leaning in. She loves this. She cannot wait to be told who it's okay to hate. 
and to be awful to, who we shouldn't tolerate. She wants to watch. She wants to help. An entire ecosystem has been revealed to us. So we've been given a gift here. It's like every pirate in the Caribbean ran up the Jolly Roger at once and professed their desire to plunder and slit throats. Now, this is in all honesty unfair to pirates, many of whom were far more decent than these people. But that's but we all got to see it. I mean, here's a tweet from uh, Governor Pritzker. The enemy is not your mask. If you're not wearing a mask in public, you're endangering everyone around you. So the enemy is you. <laughs> well, now that they've shown themselves... And now the world is becoming ours again. We must not forget, says El Gato Balo. Not ever. We must not forget who these people were and what they said and what they tried to do when they thought they could get away with it. We must not forget the pleasure they found in power and the joy in suppressing others. Because people like this don't change. They don't heal. They don't learn. They don't get better. They just get better at finding means and pretext to work woe unto those around them. And they certainly never believed a lick of it themselves. So we should never believe a word from them again. These people need to be run out of town on a rail. We've literally elected Dexter to run our lives and enabled a media to simp and simper for him. This is why you and I need to focus on becoming unplayable pieces on their chessboard. We can pick the ways, the means by which we become unplayable, but I don't think it's ever been more important than right now. This is The Brian Hyde Show.